0: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Dronier In today's episode, you will learn how to stay relevant in the business world before it's too late. My guest today is a branding expert who has worked in industries ranging from Package goes on technology to healthcare, financial services, hospitality, entertainment, so on and so forth. As you can see, he's quite an expert. He has appeared on the NBC, CNBC, Fox Business Network. He's often quoted in publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Advertising Edge, and uh, plenty of others. He is the co founder and managing partner of MetaForce, which is a marketing and product consultancy company designed to help businesses identify the right strategy that would yield the biggest results. So, Alan Adamson, let's see what you've got. I'm ready when you are. All right. So, Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Um, it's clear that the world is changing very rapidly. I'm not going to teach you... That specifically not you. And I'm not going to teach the listeners that either. It's clear that technology is advancing at a pace that is absolutely insane. It's very difficult to keep up. And it's, I think it's quite overwhelming for people marketers in particular. So what are the signs in your perspective that the business you're in, the company you're in is starting not to keep up with the changes that are appearing in today's world?
1: You know, I, I think the, the, the most important sign is to realize that everyone is becoming your father's Oldsmobile, as we say in the U.S., becoming more relevant every day. And the biggest mistake consumers make, uh, I mean, business leaders make, founders make, is to assume that, you know, everything's fine and they'll just keep on doing it. So we did over 100 interviews with 100 companies, large ones, small ones, public, private um, startups, and you know, by and large, most of the companies, even though they knew they needed to change to stay relevant, failed to successfully change. Uh, so even though everyone knows that, gee, you know, the world is changing faster, most companies failed. And one of the number one reasons is realizing that we all live in in an old in a TV show, old TV show called Fra- uh, Fraser's Chair, Marty Crane's Chair, and we're all more comfortable with the familiar. And so one of the most important findings we found is that most people need to realize that their starting place is they're already falling behind because they're more comfortable with yesterday than tomorrow.
0: And that I think is a, is a symptom of humankind, right? And it's incredibly yeah. difficult to fight, uh, to, to go into the uncomfortable place and, and to do that. So, you know, there are, it's a, there's a good reason why there are so many business coaches out there, marketing coaches out there, and, and all of those people telling you what you know already but right. just reinforcing it so that you can do it right. yourself, right?
1: Yeah, everyone is on, you know, cruise control. You know, they, you know, if you know, just let's. You go into the office, you do what you did yesterday. You open your emails, you check your messages, um, and most people operate based on yesterday's frame of reference. And so uh, it's like, you know, I know I should go to the gym every day, and uh, you know, a, a lot of people tell me that. But I still don't go every day. So so the same thing happens in business. You just got to realize that, you know, every day you're slipping further behind, even though as if when you as you grow older, you don't realize it until you look in the mirror one day with fresh eyes.
0: Yep. So I wanted to ask you another question and dive straight away into the problem and dive into the solution that you propose. But I have I have this question that comes to me, which is you've interviewed 100 around 100 companies for this book. Uh, By the way, what is the title of the book? Shift ahead. Shift ahead. And you've used your knowledge, like your experience, and the knowledge that you gather throughout those 100 interviews, right? Right. And the book is almost like it's full of all the insight that you got from those conversations.
1: Yeah, it's a combination of here's what happened to Facebook, and here's the lesson learned. What are the teachable moments? What should you learn from what Facebook went through?
0: And what are the type of companies that you've interviewed? So you mentioned startups and bigger companies. Like, what are the type of people yeah, that so, you also interviewed? So, so
1: on, of course, the traditional, you know, the, the companies you would expect, you know, P&G and general GE and Facebook and um, Comcast. And maybe ones you wouldn't expect, a, a, a public library in Connecticut. Oh, who goes to a library anymore? A deli in Manhattan that serves pastrami. Yet it's doing very well. So we tried to look for different types of business, nonprofits. Um, we looked for different businesses to see if anyone, because it's not a surprise to people in technology when you're out in Silicon Valley. Everyone knows that you know you're toast if you're not moving forward. But uh, you know we wanted to see you know what's happening across other categories as well.
0: Uh, how did uh, did you identify this, this public library and this daily? Like, was there a particular reason, or was it really random?
1: Yeah, uh, to some extent, uh, somewhat random. You know, I was thinking about libraries and say, if anything's obsolete, who goes to a library to get a book today? And uh, somebody said, well, you should check out what's going on at the Greenwich Library because they've shifted ahead from a library to a new business model. And we can talk about that later on.
0: Okay. So moving back to the actual problem we want to solve today, how to shift ahead, how to keep up with change, what are if you have to select maybe the top three red flags that a company is seriously in danger of becoming irrelevant, what would they be?
1: One of them is they tend to be playing too much tennis and not enough golf. And let me explain what I mean by that. When I was in brand management, uh, I worked at a company called Unilever. And, you know, we talked a lot about keeping an eye on the consumer. And I used to sit in their kitchens and talk to them as they made dinner about, you know, what soap they were using and why why their skin felt differently and what shampoo was good. And so we were very proud of ourselves for really watching the consumer and doing a ton of research. But at lunch, all we talked about and lots of the conversation in the hall was, did you see what P&G did yesterday? Did you see what Colgate? We became totally fixated on Colgate and Procter much more than the consumer. Same when I worked with Pepsi. Pepsi was totally fixated on Coke. The world could be in flames, but they were more interested in what's going on with Coke in what country then perhaps how people are changing what beverage are drinking. And sort of in tennis, you know, I'm bad at both sports, you know, but when I try to do better at tennis, my main objective is to watch the other guy and or the other person and try to hit the ball where they're not. Um, but if you're always focused on the other person, you, you get into trouble. Whereas in golf, also bad at that sport, you know, <laughs> I, I play with somebody. Uh, you know, yes, I want to beat them, but I'm not, you know, my eye is usually not worrying about them. I'm usually worrying about, you know, am I going to hit this, Ball. What's the wind? What club do I use? How far? You know, you're more in touch with reality. And so, one of the big syndromes of people that fail to shift ahead is they are totally focused on what's right in front of them, their competition. They must know something we're not, and they stop to they stop to look around. And most disruption, as you know, happens not from your competitor, but from somebody on the side or behind you. You look at what happened in the shaving category to P and G and Gillette. You know, they were totally fixated on Schick. Uh, but, you know, some uh, millennial uh, in a warehouse came up with Dollar Shave Club, did a video for almost nothing, got a million views overnight, and is, <laughs> and, you know, isn't close to being able to put you know, Gillette and Schick out of business. Uh, you now, he may not get the chance because he collected a huge paycheck from Unilever, <laughs> but. Uh, so most disruption, as everyone knows, happens from around you. Yet most people are only watching the other guy in front of them.
0: I love the I, I love the the description, the allegory between tennis and golf. That's actually a very nice way to put it. I never thought about it this way. But yeah, in golf, you need to focus on yourself. You need to focus on the trajectory you want to go after. You want right. you look at what the the market. You you look at the things ahead of you, and right. you don't really give a shit about what the, the others are doing because you can't. I mean, yeah. You' right. shouldn't, I mean, right. you're
1: going to lose. You made a bet on a hole. You lose that anyway. But it's not going to help your game. Whereas in tennis, it does make a difference. If you hit the ball right to the other player, you're going to lose every time. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's one. That, that's that's one, one.
0: That's one that a lot of people would definitely nod their head and agree. Absolutely. If you don't focus on customer and, and focus on focus on your competitor, you're kind of doomed. What would be the, the second?
1: The second one is mostly affects companies that are
0: publicly traded.
1: Uh, where they're, they're, there's a stock price. And most of those companies, almost all of them, have what we found to be been what we call golden handcuffs. They always talk about doing what's right for the long term, but the entire business is driven to doing whatever it takes to make Something. this quarter's number uh, and take some cost out. And, and it, it was rampant across every story, Uh, even to the point where we spoke to the folks at Campbell's Soup, you know, and and Campbell's Soup is a big U.S. brand, and uh, you don't have to be a marketing genius to know that fewer people are going to a supermarket, one, versus (laughs) buying food elsewhere, and fewer, even more fewer, are picking up a can and opening it up and having soup. But they were sitting there, and uh, they're saying things are pretty good, and they showed us, you know, dollar sales volume going up. And of course, they showed their management dollar sales volume, and the way they did that they kept on raising the price of cans of soup uh, and even though volume was continuing to go down, dollars were going up, so Wall Street said, "Hey, good job, let's give you guys a bonus, you know, but at a certain point, the pricing you know no one's going to pay forty dollars for a can of soup anymore, and the whole bubble is going to burst so uh, that's an extreme case, but almost bubble. every <laughs> yeah almost everybody was faced with that um, sense of driving quarter to quarter. And the big brands that failed, the the big poster child for failure uh, is, 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 even though it's a very old brand, is Kodak. You know, they owned photography around the world. (laughs) They owned pictures. And they had had a profit margin that, you know, was phenomenal. They were swimming in money. And so one of the things we found out, that I worked with Kodak earlier in my career, was did they not see the train coming? Did they just, like, you know, not see the and to our surprise, one, their, their forecasting people were incredible. They knew the day that the film business would be eclipsed by digital four or five years in advance. So then the question is, if you saw this train coming on it, well, why didn't you get off the track? And one of the big reasons was the golden handcuffs. Film was so profitable, they couldn't move $50 million from the film business to put it in a break-even digital business. And so they had to pay the bonuses to the film salespeople and the chemical people. So you know they couldn't make what uh, uh, some people refer to as a asymmetrical bet. You know they couldn't move money from one bucket to the other, and that's a big challenge.
0: Yeah, because how, how can you how can you shift to a new trend that you have identified 95 five years ago, and move the, the juicy profit that you that you're making right now to this that you right. know is not going to be super profitable for now but make right. a bet in the future. How can you do that when you only focus on the next quarter right. and, and shareholders?
1: And leadership, you know, you didn't, when the research people made this projection, the people, the leadership who were into photography They, oh no, d- digital cameras, look at how fuzzy they are. They'll never get, but the digital people, you know, the research people knew what they were talking about, but management said, sort of like uh, electric and self-driving cars, because, oh, that will never happen. Maybe one day. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's going to happen sooner than you think. The, the, other one, uh, broadly affect lots of organizations, big and small, doesn't have to be, but is arrogance. Um, and probably the poster child for arrogance, we spoke to people uh, uh, who were at BlackBerry um, while they were king of the heap and while they ended up out of the business. And same sort of questions, you know, you guys owned anyone who was a mover and shaker, had a BlackBerry strep, uh, strapped to their belt like a real nerd. Uh, anyone in business, you know, seen using a phone, it was, you know, and they, you know, you talk to them and they just believe that serious business people would never give up the keyboard, you know, you know, uh, the the iPhone was a music player, a toy that too shall pass. And so the number one challenge for the folks inside of BlackBerry were, was their belief that they were king of the hill and that somebody making a music player piece of glass that, you know, this you know, when you, you typed on it, half the times your fingers were too big, didn't hit the right letter. Le- uh, letters. You know, they said, well, that, you know, that will just remain a, a niche toy. So arrogance, big or small, was a major challenge.
0: I was hoping you'd mention the big data uh, conundrum that leads to absolutely no insights. Uh, but maybe you can talk about that a bit as well as a sign.
1: Yeah. You know, part of it is they collect tons of data, but no one's looking at it. <laughs> and you don't, you don't have a little bit of, uh, what I refer to as a Jerry Seinfeld. Do you ever wonder why that's happening? (laughs) Yeah. Why is that happening? Uh, And, you know, early in my career, it was astounding that some people could look at numbers and say, here's why, and here's something interesting. And other people just report all the numbers. So I was in a meeting at Unilever, and somebody said, you know, 28% of people's bathrooms have white tiles. And I said, why are we collecting that data? (laughs) It's up 5%. Great. So they're no longer (laughs) taking And and so until somebody clever in the research group says, well, you know why that's interesting, Alan, is because 95% of people who shop for soap try to match the color of the soap to the color of the tile. So if white tile bathrooms are exploding in the U.S., we better come out with a white color bar of soap, otherwise our pink bar won't be in other words, But you still got to step back and say, why do I care about it? And most people collect data and don't say the so what.
0: Wow, so that's a pretty good introduction to the to this episode. Now, I think listeners are pretty interesting to hear your perspective on how to practically avoid all of those mistakes that you are mentioning and how to practically avoid turning into a company like Blackberry or kodak or or any of those companies that used to be a huge uh, leaders in their field and that that lost their way. So how do you do that? And I know it's going to be difficult perhaps to, to distill down to that level, but what is the number one, what is the first step to actually stay relevant and keep up with the changes?
1: Well, you know, to, to, to just, just add on to your point of the hundred companies, there were a hundred ways you could fall behind and become irrelevant. There were very few, like, here are the three things you do to shift. If you only do these three things, there was not a magic potion. There were a few things that one you had to, uh, getting back to tennis, you had to avoid the unforced error. You had to make, make sure your pizza tasted good. <laughs> you had to make sure that the, you know, your product wasn't killing somebody. There were a lot of ways you could <laughs> fall behind. But you know, assuming you'd cover all the things, there were a few things um, that helped companies shift. And the first one where we started about Marty Green was attitudinal. Um, and the companies that tended to stay ahead of the game had a bit of what the famous founder of Intel said: "Only the paranoid survive." You know, and you know, uh, uh, the companies that were succeed is succeeding and is shifting ahead had an attitude was just because we were successful yesterday, so what? <laughs> uh, in fact, we we spoke to the folks at Marriott, who is one of the companies that's tended to stay more relevant than many many other in a hospitality chain. They just bought another U chain. And, you know, one of Bill Marriott's famous thing, quotes was, success is never final. And, you know, and, and so the first one is to realize that just because you have a good quarter or a good year, the only thing for sure is <laughs> that was yesterday and you better have an attitude of trying something new. So attitudes, attitudinal openness to, or the realizing that just because you're top of the heap, the only thing that means is you're not going to be top of the heap tomorrow unless you change.
0: So what does it mean, like from your experience, you're working with a lot of like big brands at the minute and, and you have mentioned uh, you have worked with many companies in the past as well. So from your experience, what does it take for a company to switch their attitude from thinking they are on top of their game and they don't have to change anything to thinking, shit, we constantly need to to make sure that we, we move and shake things right.
1: up. In not surprising uh, leadership, it was a, you know, if the CEO was risk averse, uh, and most CEOs are risk averse, you know, they try to, you know, what could go wrong? How do I not get fired? <laughs> uh, and anytime you shift ahead, the one thing that's true is that betting on tomorrow is never a sure bet. Even when you think, oh, sure, Apple knows what they're doing, it, it's always a crapshoot. <laughs> and so you need to have a culture and a leadership that says, All right. We're going to try this. And if you wait till you're 100 percent sure, the only thing you'll be is the number three or number four to market. You'll lose that way, Uh, because when you're looking at shifting your business, I think the auto business is perfect. You know, you know, you're still going to make more money selling gasoline combustion engines. (laughs) You're still going to make more money building SUVs. Uh, and, you know, the electric car is not going to be a moneymaker for most uh, manufacturers unless until the convergence happens and the tipping point happens. And by then, if you're saying, well, now I'm going to get into it, uh, forget it. It's over. I mean, across every category, when we've seen that happen, if you wait to see what happens tomorrow, uh, it doesn't work. The other d- dimension that um, uh, marketers any anyway, is um, groupthink, you know. Everyone yeses everyone to death, and everyone you know, the firms that hire everyone that went to the same school, that grew up in the same neighborhood, that see the world through one lens, tended to more often than not get shifted into the ditch. <laughs> Companies that tend to uh, stay ahead have a diverse workforce, multiple points of view. Everyone looks at the world differently and don't have a fixed world view. Uh, and so, having an organization that looks at life differently and having a diverse team around you. It's the old, there's an old uh, book about the forming of the U.S. Uh, government back in the 1700s, and it was a game of, it's the, a game of rivals, so, you know, a team of rivals, Lincoln headed. And so if you surround yourself with people that see the world just like you and tend to agree with you, that was another massive recipe for it won't be long until you are relevant. So surrounding yourself with people that see the world differently, and are comfortable speaking up in a culture that's comfortable disagreeing and having good debates and good arguments uh, tended to be, lead to organizations that
0: did well. There's a very good resource about this particular aspect, like uh, sharing your point of view and sharing your feedback, not being afraid to say what you think. Is uh, a book called Radical Candor. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. yes. heard of it. Right. Very very practical, very interesting on this point of view. Um, so hiring a diverse team seems, seems to be something... A bit more practical and actionable. It's practical, but
1: most companies don't do it. Right. Every company, you know, they, they recruit from schools. So I went to this school, so we're going to go there. Uh, you know, the number, yes, they're all good schools. And if you go to a good school, you get hire someone who learns how to think and problem solve, not memorize and be rote. But, you know, if you only hire from two, two universities, you're going to get myopic thinking.
0: Yeah, and you're going to get white males uh right. coming from mid middle uh medium class or middle class or, or higher and yeah, it's then you start losing touch with customers if the customer you're selling to are not necessarily white males right. uh, exactly. coming from the same background. But I want to come right. back briefly before we move on to maybe step two or, or, or the other segment is the leadership side. Because I know for a fact a lot of listeners would contact me about this issue. Uh they do struggle to change their leader's mind when They don't, when when they do shady marketing, when they they think that that the way they do it is fine. And they really struggle to make, you know, to change their mind. So from your perspective, when you come into a business that where you clearly see leadership to be in a position where they don't change, they don't like change, they are uncomfortable with all of the stuff you mentioned before. What do you say? Like, how do you convince them to change?
1: Well, it, it is, you know, it's difficult on the outside. It's difficult on the inside. You know, the best strategy is to make tomorrow real in front of them. So when we share research, we don't say 42 percent of consumers think you're irrelevant. <laughs> we go out and film, you know, four or five consumers telling them right to your set. I would never buy your pizza. It tastes bad. It tastes like cardboard. You know, I, I'm online every day telling my friends your pizza tastes like cardboard. Uh, and so making it, making the number come to life is, is one dimension. Um, You know, the other is to prototype, to show what the world's going to look like, help them see around the corner. Um, Everyone, you know, there are a lot of major companies that hire futurists that will predict what life will be like. And and most of them, you don't have to hire a futurist (laughs) to really figure. You can go watch a 50 year old movie, 2001 or a Star Trek episode, and they got most of what's going to happen pretty right. They just are off on the when part. But and when is really important, you know, most of the big failures have happened when people think the future's here and they're ahead of it. I had a great conversation with the uh, uh, senior person in uh, LVMH uh, in the the fashion business uh, in in Paris, and he came out of P&G. The P&G world was all about certainty. And he says, you know, what I learned at P&G is really not relevant at LVMH. The skill that's most relevant at LVMH is I need to think of myself as a surfer. And if I'm too far ahead of the trend, uh, the wave's going to wipe me out. (laughs) And, of course, if I miss a trend, I'm dead. And so part of it is feeling that balance as to you need to be slightly ahead of the wave breaking. uh, And it's much more of a touchy-feely game to try to figure out where the world's going than it is a, well, in 2019, people are going to give up their cars and start using scooters.
0: So to, to to come back to the first point you made about like having actual people telling you what they think of your brand, of your company, of your product, instead of just spreadsheet of numbers is super powerful. We talked about customer research a lot on this show and that really connects. And I think that's yeah. a huge tip that I would always say as well is instead of sharing PowerPoints, just even invite a few customers of yours in the office and let them talk and you'll see Uh right. it's going to be much easier. But to the your second point, how do you, like it's, I get the concept, right, of the wave and making sure that you surf on the right, like at the right moment uh, on it uh, to stay relevant and but yet to test new things. How, how do you know you're going too far? How do you know you're being too conservative?
1: Well, it's always another thing we found out. The companies that tended to, if they tended to be ahead of the curve all the time, they were better off because then you just have to wait and hopefully, you know, your time will come. But most companies waited too long and it were t- they were too late because they researched it to death. They analyzed it to death. They got into, you know, the classic analysis paralysis. You, know, you look at a, you look at every bankrupt company in the U.S. lately, Toys R Us. We spent a lot of time with the Toys R Us former executives. And there was an internal raging debate for years at Toys R Us. Do we try to compete with Amazon and Walmart and try to sell you toys for, you know, buy two, get two free? Or do we try to, you know... Make a high-end toy experience where you go in and say, "My kid, you know, like this. What do you recommend?" And uh, they couldn't decide. They had research on, so they did both. They opened, a, you know, flagship stores in Times Squares, and they opened warehouse stores, and they failed on both fronts. Um, uh, same with Barnes and Noble. And so, you know, most of the time, the analysis paralysis. So you're better off being early and launching as Apple did a Newton, <laughs> and having four people buy a, a, a PDA back. 20 years ago that didn't work, then, uh, but a lot of the learning led to the iPhone, uh, then you are waiting till, uh, you know, the iPhone is launched and then doing what Microsoft did and trying to launch a Zoom.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's what Apple does quite well. And I, like they are, they are the first trillion dollar company uh, ever. And so obviously they're successful for a reason. I think one thing that they quit quite well sometimes is they launch new products to learn obviously right. to sell, but you can also see that they could do it much better, but they want to just test the concept and they can afford to, they can actually right. afford to to do that. But for for a smaller company, it will come from like the lean startup type of thinking, right? right? It's like right. almost creating a team. That's what Seth Godin shared on, on this podcast. Actually, he was saying to innovate and actually come up with new ideas and, and really be a bit more ahead. You just have a team inside your company that you put in another building and you just let them take risks. Right, by far.
1: Them. Otherwise, the gravitational pull will pull them back. But, and the other big thing you were talking, you know, we were talking about what else can a company do? It, you know, you need to make sure you have the right, what we call DNA. It, you know, you, lots of companies try to, like Barnes & Noble, tried to get in to make tablets. They came up with a, a tablet called the Nook. But they were a book retailer. And so by the time they launched a tablet, you know, forget they had no, you know, they, no skill sets, and lots of companies uh, try to do, try to shift ahead, but don't have the DNA. We had a great conversation with the uh, leaders of uh, Hasbro, a toy company, and we said, well, so how did how did you make Hasbro successful? He said, well, I came into the company 15 years ago, 10 years ago. He said, uh, but there was a big uproar because I came from a tiny division in Hollywood that was making some bad movies for the company. And when I came to the headquarters, they said, what, is, "What are you bringing this guy in to lead the company? He only makes, makes crummy movies. You know, he, he doesn't know the difference between monopoly and risk. You know, are you crazy?" Uh, but it turns out that DNA, bringing that Hollywood DNA into Hasbro, made them successful. With every other toy company, is still, you know, dying off in the toy business. So making sure you have the right skill set inside, and if you want to compete in a new space, don't assume you can retrain somebody to. Uh, out Apple, Apple.
0: So that's the first, I would say, the, cat- the first category, like the attitude, right? Making right. sure that the leadership understand it, making sure that you share real data from actual customer uh, in front of you, making sure that you paint the picture of what tomorrow looks like, and starting prototyping. Making sure that you have a team that starts innovating that you put outside of the building to avoid the, the huge uh, gravitational pull that mm-hmm. we make them do a Toys R Us and basically. Right not try many things, making sure you don't overly analyze and launching stuff that's is it a good summary of this first theme? yeah very good look All right yeah, yeah, Thank sort you of, very much Those are things
1: you, you, you got a, a you get a B plus okay <laughs> right. um, but you know the the final piece is that execution matters, and companies just can see do do a few things brilliantly uh, and do what really you know And lots of companies are still stuck. We had a great conversation with the New York Times journalist, uh, Tom Friedman. And he talked about this notion that average is over and uh, that if you're average at anything today, you know, somebody will outdo you. And most companies succeeded because they were the first or only and they just do things averagely. Uh, And if you are going to get into the market, you've got to be really focused and uh, especially in the new marketing world we live in which is all driven by word of mouth, right? No one no one shares ordinary. You don't go and say, gee, I had an okay flight from London to <laughs> Paris and they got me roughly on time and they didn't spill any. You, know, you will either share what happens when they fly you to the wrong city or then you get there and then buy, you know, the, the chef on the plane came out and served you a, a birthday cake. And so, so you the whole world of average afflicts every company. And if you're not going to be extraordinary at anything, you're going to be invisible today.
0: And that comes back to one point we made about Apple where, where like they, they would test stuff and th- you, you made the point that they started like, this PDA, uh, like 20 years ago, they started to sell it. It didn't really work out. But, and you mentioned that they learned a lot from it and right. by executing quite fast and making a lot of mistakes, they were still able to afford, like they learned a lot of lessons. And that enabled them for the next iteration to do something better and better and better. So in my, when I started my career, like I, I had this idea in my head that you must work hard to make sure that something is really, really, really good before shipping it out. But All in right. fact, I realized that the only way to actually create something really, really, really good in the future is to start now with something and continuously
1: sh- improve, right? Something
0: shitty enough to be comfortable <laughs> with something shitty enough that people mm. will tell you feedback mm-hmm. and share their feedback so you can improve because there's no other way, right? There's right. no other way.
1: Yeah. In a world, you have to move fast. If you test and test and test and tell is perfect, uh, it, you're, you'll be toast.
0: And this is how I started the podcast. I mean, you wouldn't believe the the level of the interviews when I started, like mm-hmm. the, the quality that wasn't, that wasn't that good, right? But the mm-hmm. fact that yeah. like, you just kept going and going and going. That yep. made me a bit better at interviewing people and that the podcast started to be a bit, a bit better as well. I mean, that's a small yep. example, but still, right. I think it's relevant. So, okay. Attitude, the big shift towards execution versus just over planning, over analyzing. Now, in your, based on all the conversation you had, based on your experience, what is the kind of the second pillar of shifting ahead? What are, what are the, the, the items in there?
1: Well, make sure you have the, um, you make sure you're not looking at your business myopically and that's a biz, business school world, but every company, just making sure you understand why people are going to buy you your service or product uh, and really understanding that. Uh, and there's so many examples. Let me just go back to the, uh, to the, 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 the Greenwich library thing, because it was uh, so fascinating when I spoke to, it. you know, I was just expecting people to say, well, um, people don't borrow books anymore. So, you know, we you know, we rent podcasts, but they went out into the community and said, well, you know, the whole mission of the library needs to change. Our purpose needs to change. A lot of people talking about purpose driven marketing. They said we need to be the hub of Greenwich. Uh, Greenwich is a small town out of New York City. Uh, and if we were the hub of Greenwich, what would a hub deliver? Well, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Yes, you could still borrow books, but a hub in Greenwich would fuel the startup community. So you'd want. You know, to have sort of a work there, so people can come in and use it as office space. A hub of Greenwich would need to be a tech shop. What happens if you have an Apple laptop but a PC? You're screwed most times. You can't go to the genius bar. Microsoft's customer service is awful. So they set up a, a genius bar in the Greenwich Library, but for any technology. You know, you, you can't download this, you don't. And so they'll you know, what, what, what are librarians good at? You can always ask Google, but if you ask Google, uh, you end up with the 500 paid things and, you, you know, to be good at Google search, you're still better off getting to someone who really knows how to find the needle in the haystack. So having a librarian work with you to try to find something out, accelerates. So they became a different – they set up training, classes, uh, anything – everything but borrowing books. And as such, has have become, a, you know, crowded, vibrant – it feels like a startup inside the library – not a sleepy place you go to read uh,
0: a novel. So how, how do you think they did that? So you mentioned the mission behind it, but we also mentioned the the importance of focusing on the right thing, not overdoing, right? right? Like you, you mentioned Toys R Us, where they started to do two things at the same time. And mm-hmm. it almost sounds like your your library example is seems also a bit like this. They, they did this tech shop. They also did this co-working space. But
1: they, they had a clear laser focus on if you're going to be the hub, of this community and help this community succeed. What's important to it? And it was about business. It was about technology. You know, they had a clear sense of what their constituents had. Now Greenwich is probably not the best test case because once they figured out what they needed to do, they could also fund because it's a affluent area. They could rebuild the the library. They could you know hire the right people. So they could they could execute it, which was another uh, piece. But um, you know, I think that. Getting to that right definition, we had a great conversation with another f- brand I grew up loving, which was National Geographic, and they almost didn't make it because uh, they defined their business. We're in the magazine business, but no one's reading magazines like no one's looking books. And so when they dug into it, what do they stand for? They stand it for helping you, you know, understand nature, but maybe not understand, maybe experience it. So one of the few, first smart things they did was they formed about 10 years ago a partnership with a Swedish cruise line, a tiny cruise line called Lindblad. And so instead of cruises where you sit on the deck and you, you drink pina coladas and go to dinner, there Lindblad was about cruising you so you could get off on a glacier in Antarctica and, you know, walk with the penguins. And so all of a sudden, those became National Geographic expeditions. And now instead of reading a magazine, you go with a National Geographic Naturalists, you land in Antarctica. You have a National Geographic photographer show you how to take a picture. If you have an SLR, he'll get you the perfect penguin picture. If you have an iPhone, there's a there's a National Geographic iPhone expert. You'll have and they'll help you actually have a conversation with a penguin. And sure enough, when the people look at your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed, they go, "Oh my God, I got to do that." And so they pivoted from just a you know, a reporting of what's going on in Antarctica to saying, you know, experience Antarctica. And of course, they did other things. They realized that why magazines? And so they said, gee, we've got great talent like Jane Goodall, who understood, you know, for 40 or 50 years have been studying uh, gorillas in Africa. Let's make a movie about it. And it came out this year, a release in movie theaters. It's called Jane. So they realized they they got out of their critical Flaw, which was we're in the magazine business, so that means we send a reporter out to write a story and take a picture.
0: So applying this to Toys R Us as an example, so it seems like what the mistake that Toys R Us did was to um, focusing on two missions in a sense, two exactly unrelated two unrelated, unrelated two, two, things,
1: two things you could not combine. You couldn't be the lowest price option. And provide the highest level of expertise.
0: So if you were if you were working with Toys R Us when they were questioning this, you would probably have said, "Let's focus on one core mission. What do we believe in as a company? What is our point of view? And let's execute on this.
1: Laser focus, and then you have to execute well. So they failed. Most companies fail on two fronts: one, they couldn't decide, and two, even if they could decide, they didn't have the right execution. So if you were going to go after the price game at Toys R Us, you yeah. know, years ago, you would have said, "Maybe we should buy Amazon." You know, because we're never going to win the, the, the no matter how big we build a warehouse, we're never going to win the toy business. So even if you pick the right path, you still got to figure out how to win. And that's by no means easy.
0: So in terms of like this second kind of theme we started to talk about, which is which is about this mission driven thing. Do you do you see anything else important that is in there that we haven't talked about? Um, anything at all?
1: You need to constantly re- revisit it, and just because you have a mission, uh, doesn't mean it's the right one, or you should stick to it until you're out of business. We had a you know a great conversation with the leadership at Conservation International, a global nonprofit, uh, and their mission was to protect endangered ecosystems. Um, and for 30 years, they were phenomenally successful at trying to protect. And one day, the founders got up and said. We're on the wrong mission. We can't build walls around these ecosystems and keep the outside world in In Africa and Asia. We have to work with the local communities uh, and have a symbiotic relationship with the outside because we can't keep the walls to stop all the poachers. So if we don't make it economically viable to harvest the coffee beans or to to work with the animals, then we're going to fail. So they changed their mission and made it more symbiotic. Half the board quit how could you support Starbucks? How could you do this? You know, and, but it's phenomenally successful because it's been more, they've been more successful in fulfilling their mission, executing it, because it's more realistic, even though it's not what the founder originally said when he started the organization.
0: And how does one think of a mission in the first place? How do you typically invite companies to, to find their why, to find why they are even existing?
1: It really, and I think that's one of the, you know, we talk about marketing BS. Uh, one of the biggest bullshit industries out there is if you're on the outside, I'm going to tell you your mission or your purpose. If it's not inside and authentic and who you are, you can, you know, lots of companies go out and say, let's do research and find out what people want. <laughs> and then we'll say, we do that. And they fail a hundred percent of the time because instantly it's not authentic. Instantly, it's not believable. Instantly they can't pull it off. So, you know, the first thing to do in trying to be purpose-driven is to not hire all these high-talk, fast-talking marketing experts who try to write fancy lines, but to say, you know, do you have a purpose? And if you don't, don't make it up. If you're just in there to make a fast buck, don't say you want to save mankind because consumers are getting smarter and smarter and will call BS on you. So I would say, you know, maybe... Maybe 25% of companies can possibly say they're purpose-driven, and the other 75 are all bullshit.
0: So how do you deal with that when you're in the
1: 75%? You're better off not having a purpose and just doing your job than making up a fake purpose and having people find you out. Because authenticity matters with younger consumers. And if people see you saying, I want to save the planet and dancing on ads, and yet, your leadership team is driving uh, big SUVs. Don't oh, forget it. You'll
0: be found out. But it means that for those seventy-five percent, do you think that they'll be able to shift ahead and and to keep with to keep up with the change? Yeah,
1: I, I think that yeah. If they do many other things, but you don't have to be purpose driven to shift ahead. You just have to execute and be able to change fast and be a pretty good chameleon. Uh, but um, but it certainly helps, uh, especially with the gen z and millennials uh, people want to know not only what a company makes and what it delivers but why and you know they're they're voting as everyone knows more and more with their credit card than they're voting at the poll booth
0: My my guts tell me it's just a gut feeling my guts tell me that more and more this purpose-driven uh style of organization are going to flourish more and more because you mentioned those those the G word and the M word, the millennials and Gen Z, right? But they, they I am part of the millennial category, even if I fucking hate the, the term because it's so, such a broad term. It but, sounds
1: like you're just going to hang out and live at your parents' house until they throw you out.
0: <laughs> but exactly. But there's there's something that I can see happening, definitely in the younger uh, generation, is the is the fact that people really give a shit about something bigger than just the product they buy, right? And, it's, and they
1: read the fine print, they do yeah. the research, and they've grown up and so much bullshit is being thrown at them. They have a better nose to smell. You're full of shit, or you're not.
0: That's why everyone hates marketers. Um, yeah. Okay. So attitude uh the second one is more about the the finding your purpose and aligning that with with your with your um with what you offer uh, uh, to the outside world if you do have a purpose if not let's not try to fake it what will be kind of the third theme
1: the third theme is you know a pretty obvious one like we started with what a surprise move fast you know um when we did some Conversations out at Facebook, and Facebook's certainly going through its challenges now. You know, on the walls there is "Move fast and break things." And then when I was speaking to the team there, they said, "Well, you know, when we're on an assignment for Mark, uh, I can I get a hall pass. It's called a hall. You know, well, what's a hall pass?" I said, "Well, I can get out of all the bullshit meetings. I don't have to go to HR. I don't have to go to the dental plan meeting. You know, I, if I'm on a project, I can just close every door and just." go into the basement and focus on it and break things along the way. So, you know, when they first bought Instagram, the marketplace looked at Facebook and said, are you crazy paying all that? But they knew already way back then that people were sharing more pictures and words. So, you know, they have a lot of uh, headwinds right now, but uh, in general, uh, if you're going to shift ahead, no matter what you do, you have to move faster than you think.
0: And shouldn't, All of the Facebook employees have an old pass. It sounds like to to get you done.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a big company. Yes. Um, So, but most companies, you try to get a meeting. So this is another major finding for companies that don't shift ahead. Most of them have a tomorrow meeting, a futures meeting. On Thursday, we'll discuss tomorrow. So if the future is what we call an agenda item, where they say on Thursday, we're going to talk about what we're going to do next year, you're screwed. Uh, because, you know, Thursday comes, oh, I'm too busy, I'll go home. Or, you know, something else. You know, companies that are paranoid every day and every day they're trying to reinvent tomorrow and don't leave it for the strategic planning group or the five-year plan or three-year plan or 90-day plan. Companies that maintain that sense of a startup hunger. You know, one of the one of the things to – is something called – uh, another famous book called The Founder's Mentality. Um, and your listeners could pick it up. But basically – when you work, we talk to lots of founders and founders, you know, my father-in-law was a founder of a company and he was in the retail, uh, retail shopping business. And on a Saturday or Sunday, he would go to retail stores and just wander the mall and talk to me about, look at this shopper here. And so it was so much part of them. They they, they, they stay close to their customer. They ask people at dinner, they say, what do you think of this? But they are constantly paranoid. Is this right? Is this right? And once you lose that hunger for saying, you know, what do I have to do to succeed? And, you know, the future becomes an agenda item. Uh, you are uh, on your way to uh, Shady Farms retirement home.
0: <laughs> but it sounds like it sounds like you need to be paranoid about your customer, what they think. It sounds like you shouldn't be paranoid that much about what Coke is doing if you're Pepsi. Exactly. So if I have to summarize the, 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 the step-by-step or the, the kind of the themes that we discussed to, together mm-hmm. on, on this, this episode right now is, is really focusing that much on your customers that you can't be relevant Because if you really are paranoid and talk to them every day and, and face-to-face, not only via spreadsheets, you are probably in a better situation. than You're in a better most. situation,
1: but then you've got to, once you see them, the customers changing, you got to be able to do something about it. And, you know, whether it's changing your offer, not easy, or making sure you have people on your team that have the skill set. If you're in the book retailing business and you decide you want to sell computer tablets, well, you better hire some people from Silicon Valley and have some geeks in there. Uh, You can't take a book retailer and make them into a tech retailer.
0: Right. So understand your people, understand your customer, understand your purpose. If you have one, get shit done, move fast. Don't be afraid to to break things break literally things. Uh, yeah. and you should be in a better position than most companies 50, out there
1: you have a 50 50 chance of shifting ahead headband that's <laughs> because, good you know execution matters you know you can do everything right and still fail it's just really hard
0: right so, Alan, you've been an absolute pleasure to talk to and thanks for taking the time to do this step by step with me i have a few more questions before i let you go that i always okay. ask my guest what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years?
1: Yeah, um, only the only, people only share extraordinary, and you better be extraordinary, and extraordinary changes. So everyone just does, has a check-the-box mentality. Oh, we have, a little, we have social media, we're doing that, we're doing a little product sampling. Everyone does a check-the-box thing. You're better off doing one thing because average is over and doing it extraordinarily. So stay more focused, do less, and be better at it, then try to do everything. A lot, of, a lot of marketers do the, uh, like when I watched my, uh, earlier in my life, when of my 7 year old used to play soccer, football for the rest of the world. <laughs> everyone chased the ball. You know, there were 10 kids around the ball and the whole field was empty. And that's what's happened in marketing. Everyone says, oh, we got to be on digital, social, everyone's running after the, and, and so the rest of the field's open. You got to zig w- and where everyone else is
0: zagging. You have a lot of sports an- analogy, I love mm-hmm. it. Bad ones. <laughs> no, they're good. Tennis, golf, <laughs> soccer. Interesting. Um, what are the top three resources you would recommend our listeners today? That could be anything. Books, conferences, podcasts.
1: I would say my first is get out of your office. The companies that read too much and just look at everything online and run their life, just like my kids when they have their nose and their smartphone all day. You Fucking know, millennials. <laughs> you know, they have no clue what's going on. So, you know... You know, Get out, travel, talk to people, you know, try to see everything with fresh eyes. Get out of your neighborhood, shop in a different neighborhood, go to a part of the city you've never been to, you know, go talk to people at a train station, you know, get out from behind your desk and start, you know, looking around and living a bit, not just be totally myopically focused on what you're doing and answering emails.
0: So that's the number one.
1: Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and I would even broaden that further. I, you know, the, I had a, when I came out of business school, I had an interview with a big ad agency, and I went through nine interviews, and they finally said, now you're going to meet the chairman. And I sat in his office, and he said, so I was ready to talk about market segmentation and all the bullshit I had learned in business school. And he said, so, Alan, um, tell me the last book you read and the last movie you went to, and what did you think of it? I, of course, said, you know, I said, green eggs and ham. And he goes, well, tell me about green eggs and ham. Uh, and I go, oh, I'm screwed now. And finally, after I survived that somehow, I asked him, well, why do you why do you, why I'm coming here for a marketing job? Why do you ask me about the last book I read? Because uh, well, we don't want people who've read business books. We want people who are our clients need people who are in touch with what's going on in culture. And if you don't zoom all the way out, you're not going to see what's going on. So I don't want you studying marketing books when you're here. I want you, you know, to be our client's eyes and ears and see what's going on. So. That's another extension of getting out from behind your desk, but broader than just, you know, looking at the Pepsi can, the Coke can. But really seeing what's going on, with, seeing how people are living, what's going on. What else is interesting to them? Because in a world of too much information, <laughs> more information, you know, ain't going to
0: help. Right. So that's number two. Very, very strong statement again. And what would be the third resource? The third resource is probably
1: to, and it's, it's somewhat related to the other, where it's, it's hang out with different people. You know, again, get out of your bubble. They're all about getting out of your bubble because it's the number one thing. You know, it, it, most people, you know, the elections in the US were people in New York and LA and were surprised, but they were in a bubble. They were in Facebook listening to their friends say what was going on. Get different, get out of your bubble on a friend's basis too. talk to people that you ordinarily don't talk to. Um, try to get diversity into your life. Don't hang out with your same four friends in your basement saying the world's crazy, you know, and we'll all have the same purview. You know, get out and and diversify your view of the world because the more clarity you have on change happening right in front of your nose, um, it will likely come not from you, but from your friends. But get different friends too. Don't just hang out with the same old suspects.
0: Well, Alan, as I said, like it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and learn a lot from you. And what I liked the most about our conversation was the amount of examples that you shared, illustrating many points. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for taking the effort to do that. Where can uh, listeners connect with you and learn more from you?
1: You can go to shiftaheadbook.com, and I have lots of my content. Uh, I write for Forbes often and up, up there, or metaphors.co. It's my consulting firm that drives helping companies shift ahead, Uh, in the marketplace. Once again, thank you very much. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. Have a good day.
0: That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com and this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and um, personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get, and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests, and perhaps I can also Uh, have you on the show uh, someday, so don't be afraid to subscribe, I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve, so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com, good or bad, please feel free to send me an email. And the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker so thank you so much once again and au revoir